All right. Um, okay, so we are in a series on the book of Acts called To Be Continued, and this kingdom has no end. They don't have the graphic, I suppose, but it's always nice when we have it. But um, we took kind of a departure from it last week with Chad Dedman here, and so what I want to do is I want to read some of the passages of Scripture that lead into where we're going today. And it's kind of an overlap of like some of the stuff that we've read before, uh, been in some of the messages before. And so we're going just to kind of catch up for a minute. So if you can go in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 23, it starts with this, and I'll give a little bit of the context. We know that Peter and John had healed the man at the gate called Beautiful, and it kind of stirred up a ruckus with the Pharisees, and they got taken into to prison and questioned and all that. And so what we're picking up now is after their release. So at verse 23, it says this, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and why do the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That's the context for where we're going today. So um, on we go. Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the disciples called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And now we go to chapter 5. Brace yourselves. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who saw and heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. 
Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Dang. <laughs> okay, first off, let me say, with this passage of scripture, I, I'm going to tell you this right now. When we were preparing, like, as a, as a teaching team of where we were going to go, I, I love the first half of this, like the everyone sharing everything and love, love, love. I love that. I was like, oh, I'm going to preach on that because I love that. I got a word for that. And then Ryan said, and that also includes Ananias and Sapphira, and I thought, no, I don't, I don't want to. Because that's, I got to tell you, although I love the first half of this, both sections of this passage carry a lot of weight for people. There's a lot of baggage with these passages for a lot of people. And so when I, when I signed up for it and then began realizing what I had done, I got a little bit like, oh no, what did I do? And began contending with the Lord about this. And so before I go any further, I think we need to pray because we need the Lord's wisdom to understand this. Because quite honestly, if you've been around church for any length of time, there may be some baggage you are carrying in for these passages of scripture. And so right now, what I'm going to ask is that we pray and we just simply surrender those things to the Lord. So close your eyes with me. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we recognize that we need your wisdom. Lord, we know, I know that there is baggage associated with both of these passages, yet I know that you placed them here. You showed us your early church. You showed us the consequences of these actions. You showed us, and you did not blush to put them together. You put them there together so that we could see them, so that you have wisdom for us to learn. And so, Lord God, we want your wisdom, and we know from your word that when we ask for wisdom, you are glad to give it. And so, Lord, right now we surrender any and all baggage we have associated with these passages of scripture, any wrong teaching, any, any um, religious spirit, any legalism that we have learned along the way, Lord God, we surrender to you right now and we simply ask, Lord, give us your wisdom so that we can see it, so that we can walk in your light, so that we can walk in your truth. Lord, bless us this morning by giving us your spirit to understand. Lord, may revelation and wisdom abound this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Woo! Okay, so I want to set a little bit of a context for this, um, because it is, this is a powerful passage. And one thing that we have to look at right away is we have to look at this reality. The believers were praying for power. They were praying for the supernatural to come upon them. They were praying to be emboldened, to be a people of God. And we see that when they were in prayer and they were praying for the hand of the Lord to move powerfully, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the room was shaken, and, and there it was, and it was happening. And one of the first signs and demonstrations of the supernatural power of God was in their supernatural generosity. Now, I have to say, we have a church where we want the supernatural to happen. We want breakthrough. We want healing. We want prophetic words. We want words of knowledge. We want the Spirit to move. And let me ask us this. Have we gone before the Lord and said, Lord, make us a supernaturally generous people? Because right here, from the foundations of the church, we see that one of the ways, and it says specifically, the grace of God was heavy upon them, and it demonstrated it in the fact that there was nobody in need. It's an amazing thing to think and consider. It's an amazing thing to, to wrestle with and to ask the Lord. One of these supernatural signs is generosity. It's generosity. 
And I want to define it for you just a little bit, and then we're going to set a, a, a context. Generosity is a quality. It's not a single act. It's a, it's a disposition of our heart and our spirit. And so I might give you something, but I might give it to you in one instant, and it's a fluke. It's not part of my character. I might give it to you out of compulsion. I might give it to you out of because someone is l- watching me, and I want to appear more generous than I actually am. But when generosity is part of your character, it overflows, and it's not just financially. In fact, I want to say this right here and now so that we can clear this air. This passage is so much less about money than we may have even be able to comprehend. This is about generosity, not about money. Yes, when we have a generous spirit and our character is generous and supernaturally generous, we will give money because it doesn't have a hold on us. But when we are supernaturally generous, it flows out of us in more places than just money. It flows way out, way out. Let's read this. Generosity is a quality, a lot like unselfishness. Someone showing generosity is happy to give. Happy to give all the time. Happy to give time, money, food, kindness, respect. Happy to give of our talents and our resources happy to give a listening ear, happy to give a compassionate response, happy to give a shoulder to cry on, happy to give an extra bedroom in our house, happy to give a place at our dinner table. A generous spirit overflows in a multitude of ways. It is not simply just our financial resources. In fact, that should be freeing to a lot of people up, up here who don't have a lot of financial resources. Because it does not disqualify you from generosity. In fact, many of us might be scraping by financially. And if we were to teach generosity simply in a financial terms, then that condemnation might come on you and you feel like you can't engage in it. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because every single one of us have resources that the Lord gives us, whether that's in our talents, our gifts, our personality, whatever it is. And God calls us to generosity. And so if you feel, if you have the tight pinch financially, maybe that's not the way the Lord is calling you to give. Maybe he's calling you to give, I don't know, a number of different ways. Can you cook? Let me give you this example. Um, this is kind of a funny example. Do you know that we, we have a lack of tolerance for generosity, which is really quite an indictment against us? And I'll, I'll present it this way. Susan and I, we, you know, we moved here from Portland about six months ago. And, woo. And, uh, and we were at a church where I think that about everyone decided to have a baby at the same time. And there was literally 16, 17 babies that were all born in a six-week period in our church. I mean, it was crazy. It was like, what's up in the water up in here? And, and what then began to happen was on Facebook, we got meal train notices every live long day. It was like every day it was like meal train, meal train, meal train, meal train, meal train to the point where we're like, we don't have any food to eat for ourselves because we're like giving these meals out to all these couples. And, you know, it's funny because we see those things and we might even engage in them, but we grow a a short tolerance for them. Like after a little while, it's like, why do these people keep having babies? You know, why do they need food? Don't they have enough food? Don't they have a job? You know, it's just like, they, they can go to Baja Fresh themselves. They can go. They don't need me to go for them. They might not even eat it. I've seen their fridge. You know, it's like, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it, our, our tolerance for generosity is limited. In fact, 
it's clinically shown that we have a really low tolerance for grief for people. In fact, we have about a three-week tolerance for grief. So if we are not the ones experiencing grief, we see someone who experiences a loss, and we're there with them for a week. We're like right there with them, like, yes, let me, let me go down into the pit with you and, and have empathy and consolation, and I'm there for you anytime you need me. I'm there for you. Tick, 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 tick. And it's like, okay. And then another week passes, and you're like, I'm here for you. I'm over here for you. Here's a pamphlet on grief. You know, and you just, like, you begin to, like, distance yourself. And, and please don't misunderstand me. There is a place for proper, proper boundaries, right? Because it says in here that they met each other's needs, not all their wants. There is a difference. Praise Jesus. Because you might want Baja Fresh, but I'm not buying it for you. <laughs> what you need is a salad. You know, it's like, that was rude. Okay, I'm, the Spirit of the Lord is not moving right yet. <laughs> so, okay, let me, let's get back on track. So we have a tolerance, we don't have a tolerance for the grief. Week three, we're done. And yet, most of the time when people experience a loss, it's not for three or four weeks before that really starts to sit in. And our generosity of spirit with just compassion has run thin. Church, are we praying for supernatural generosity? Are we praying for the discernment to know what's a need and what's a want? Because I'll tell you this, it's not generous just to give each, everyone all their wants all the time. We have to discern what the need is. We have to discern what the need is, and we have to be willing to meet it. So I want to I give you a historical context for what they were doing, because it's also really important to understand. Uh, in the Jewish culture, they had this thing called Jubilee. If you haven't heard of it before, it was a way that God designed the economy of the Jewish people, his chosen people, to work and operate. And it's it is revolutionary because way, the way that it worked is every 50 years you'd hit the year of Jubilee. And on that year of Jubilee, all land and all possessions went back to the original owner. So let's say in our current context, it would be like you have a piece of property. But say that property, the, 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 the family who owned it was Kim's family. But years back, like a year, you know, 49 years ago, they hit a hard time, so they had to sell that property to, say, you. And so you've had it for 49 years, but on the year of Jubilee, that land goes back to Kim. So it was a way that God designed this, this culture and this economy to keep people from totally in the depths of despair and, and, and losing everything in a difficult time because you knew, really, ownership was, was, it was the Lord's anyway. And so it was the Lord's resource to give back to whom he wanted to give back to. And so you were just a steward for that season in time. It's a really beautiful concept to keep in mind for us about our lives and our resources because we're just stewards. We don't own any of it. And so say that you were, you know, you had 10 years to go on this cycle and you knew that if you hit this, this trouble, you were going to sell your land. And so it was going to be 10 years till you get it back. So really the buyer would probably spend or, or sell it based on how many years left they had to use the land. Well, when the, uh, the commentaries that I read spoke that on this particular situation, when the, the, the followers of Christ were selling their land, it was the year of Jubilee, meaning they were surrendering all 50 years of their land. So this was a really big sacrifice in their perception, a big sacrifice to give their possessions what was rightfully theirs. In fact, they may have just gotten it back in their inheritance, and they're handing it right back over to Jesus. It's such a beautiful picture 
and such a consequential picture. And it really, just my arms are bug bugging me today, it really is a sign of the generosity, the supernatural generosity that Jesus poured into his people. And it was such a visible sign to the world around them that they were caring for each other. You know, it's one thing to be told that you're loved. I love that sign out in the foyer of our church. It says it really, like, plainly, you are loved. Can't really say it more plain than that, can you? It's one thing to be told. It's another thing to have that demonstrated through generosity. It's another thing to have that, that example being given to you in a practical means that meets a need in your life that otherwise is going unnoticed. Does that make sense? Church, can we pray to be people of generosity? Not just in our word, not just in our belief system, but how we live it out. Because it does say, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the res resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. That is a demonstration of God's power. Generosity is severely important in the kingdom of God. Go to Isaiah 58. Starting at verse 6, it says this, Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? And catch this, verse 8, Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be at your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and your strength and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Did you notice the pattern? Did you notice the pattern? When you do these things, when you pour out your life in generosity to care for the needs around you, when you see others as important, probably sometimes more important than yourself, when you see the hurting, when you see the broken, when you see the prisoner, when you see the hungry, when you see the naked, and you respond, then... Then will the Lord make you shine like the noonday. Then your healing will quickly come. Then, 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 and. It's, it's amazing to see. It is so counterintuitive to us. It is so incredibly counterintuitive to us because our inclination is to try to protect ourselves, to try to meet our needs first, to try to to hold on to what we think we need so that we are healed. And again, and again, this isn't about every want met. This isn't about every time a request comes across your table. Because honestly, sometimes what you're doing is keeping people bound. When you meet every want. That's not breaking the yoke. That's not setting the prisoner free. Sometimes that's keeping people in prison. That's why we need the supernatural wisdom of God to know what is the need. What is the need here, not what is the want? But then, not just to say what is the need, discern it and say, well, that's what they need. 
Go give it to them. Go give it to them. Find a way. Find a way to give it to them. I tell you what, there have been times in my life where I've been sitting in a, in a pit of loneliness. And I'm like, I don't have relationships. I don't have friends. And the Lord's like, go be a friend. It's like, well, but I need. Yeah, you do. So do they. Go be a friend. Go give, and I will refresh you. You know, you're feeling insecure. I'll heal that for you. You know how? Go. <laughs> Go step out. Go step out and meet the need. You're feeling insecure. You don't want to speak in front of people. Guess what? You're going to go speak. Go meet the need, and I will heal you. Go meet the need. It's amazing to see how the Lord does this. Now, in terms of our needs and the people around us, let me just say this. Religion has taken on a very bad context for us. We hear the word religion, and we get really, really uh, stuck. Uh, we start viewing this in terms of, like, legalism and obligation and compulsion. But let me read this, James 1, 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion in and itself is the outworking of our faith. When it's out of compulsion and legalism, that's dead religion. When it is from a spirit of generosity and love and grace and mercy and kindness and compassion, this is what the Lord accepts as pure religion. You know, it is beautiful when it's played out from that supernatural place of generosity. So this is, would you say this is important? Would you say this is important to the kingdom of God? I'm going to give you one more example. I didn't give it to first service, but I have more time today in this service. Go to Matthew 25. If you don't think this is important, oh, Lordy. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Does this sound familiar? I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did, you, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as, as a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? I love the late Keith Green. I don't know if you know, we sang one of his songs this morning, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. He wrote a song like this uh, on this scripture. And when he was quoting these people, he said, I would never forget that face. You know, like, when did we do this for you? And the Lord's response is, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. God cares greatly about how we engage in our generosity to those in need. He cares greatly greatly because as we love each other we are loving him through loving each other our practical demonstration of our love for jesus is played out in our relationships for one another that is why the lord god said love one another as i have loved you that is why he said love the lord your god with all your heart your soul your mind your strength and love your neighbor as yourself it is tied relationally in how we demonstrate generosity of spirit and heart and love and how we demonstrate it
I'm going to give you a couple practical examples of this because I think it's hugely important to have practical on the ground application. One of my favorite uh, speakers, friend of mine, travels the world. He told a story to me once about how he uh, engaged with this church down in, in the south in the U.S. And it was a church where there was a, a, sing a mom who had four kids and her husband left her just out of nowhere, up and left her. And so she was dealing with the reality of having to care for these four kids as a single mom. He wasn't paying child support. He wasn't doing anything. And so she was in this terrible situation of having to go back to work and try to support these kids. Would you say that, practically speaking, she was a widow? And those kids, practically speaking, were an orphan. So the men's ministry in this church saw this circumstance, and they went before the Lord as a men's ministry. And they said, Lord, what will you have us do? Because we see the need. We see the, the, the need. We see it. It's painful. And then what they did is this. They worked out a schedule where every other day, one of the men from that church was in that home every night after school, taking care of those kids, playing with those kids, mowing the lawn, fixing the sink, doing whatever they needed to do, whatever they could do out of the, based out of their own skill, their time, their heart, their compassion, their mercy. Those were their resources. And so they gave according to the need. And they were in that home every week for seven years. Holy cow. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to take care of the orphans and the widows in their distress. Praise the Lord. It was a small church. It was smaller than our church. And yet the men in that church took very seriously this. They took very seriously, and the kingdom was alive in them. The kingdom was alive in them to see Let's take care of those in our family who are in need. These kids are in need. They don't have a dad. This, this woman is in need. She doesn't have a helper. The word of the Lord, Psalm 68 says, He is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows he is, who is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families and he leads out the prisoners with singing. He cares about this and he calls us. He calls us to do this. In my own life, I had the privilege of seeing this principle lived out. I was a recipient of it multiple times. There was a couple in my church by the name of Jean and Kathy Stevenson. We called them Ma and Pa Stevenson. They lived in a little town outside of our hometown of Yakima. It's called Cowwitchy. When a town has the word cow in it, <laughs> you know there's not much to the town. So they lived in this double wide on this piece of this farmland. They, they were not rich people in finances. He was, he worked for Pacific Power as a lineman. She was an administrator at some business. They, they didn't make a lot of money. They had two kids, Sean and Julie. Those were their natural born children and they had about a hundred other kids. Because Ma and Pa Stevenson, whenever youth group was done, especially in the summer, where did we all want to go? To Ma and Pa Stevenson's house. And their kitchen was probably the size of the sound booth, but we'd fit 40 people in there. All around the table they had what they called dip which was seven-layer bean dip, but there's not enough room to get in it because you're just going to like, you know, because there's 40 people in this small space. It wasn't about the space. It was about their generosity and their love that, that just exuded out of them. Jean had a shop with, uh, with a garage in there. Anytime one of the kids from the youth group, their car was having problems, Jean would figure it out. And over to your house, uh, his house, you'd go, and he would get under the car with you, and we'd show you how to fix a tire, or change oil, or change an oil filter. I remember the day he got me underneath the car. 
I learned how to change my oil. I haven't since, but I learned. <laughs> and I experienced someone being a father to me in a season where I didn't have a father around. Jean and Kathy were amazing at this, and, and I shared this story with Anthem, uh, the Anthem, this Anthem class this week, where there was a Christmas Eve service, and I was in this Christmas Eve service, and at the end of the service, the pastor from the pulpit said, okay, everyone, go to your families and have a time of, of prayer because we're going to have family prayer on Christmas Eve. Now, I did not, my family did not attend church. I was alone. And as I sat there and I watched people move across the church to get to their families, that, that feeling just like all the hot air in the whole world started coming out from underneath my collar and the tears were just welling up in my eyes. And never in my life have I felt more like an orphan sitting in church. Never in my life have I felt more alone and more rejected and more abandoned than in that moment. And I got up and I started to walk towards the door because I needed to get out of the sanctuary because I was about to ugly cry in front of everybody. <laughs> and you don't do that on Christmas Eve. That's Jesus' day. <laughs> so I made it to the door, and then I had about 50 yards from the sanctuary door out the foyer door to the outside where I could be safe and I could let it out. And I, full sprint, started running. And I got almost to the door where Kathy Stevenson, who is about six inches shorter than me, caught my collar. I almost, you know, poof, legs in the air, but she caught my collar and I turned around, just tears and snot and ugly everywhere. And I looked at her in the face and she had tears flowing down her face. And she said, where are you going? I said, I don't have a family. She said, yes, you do. She dragged me back into the sanctuary where Jean and Sean and Julie and 15 other kids were around for the Stevenson family prayer. He sets the lonely in families. Our resources are more than our money, you guys. It's our heart. It's who we are. Do we give it to the needs of those around us? Do we pour out generously to the needs of those around us? Because it has an eternal impact. It has an eternal impact. Okay. Proverbs 11.25 says, A generous person will prosper, and whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Let me just say this. If you're worried about being, if you've ever been exploited for your giving, if you've ever been drained by your generosity and you feel gun-shy, the Lord knows. And maybe sometimes those weren't needs. Maybe they were just, you got caught in the codependency and there was just a lot of wants. So learn from it. But know that any time you meet the need and you are a generous individual, God will prosper you and he will refresh you. I've experienced that over and over and over and over and over again myself. So now I have to talk about Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> and our time is up. Just kidding. So when we were meeting as a teaching team, we were talking about this and, and we got to this and, and Ryan's like, well, you can just punt it. You can just punt Ananias and Sapphira. And I thought, well, it won't hurt them. They're already dead. And so, um, and I'm using a sports analogy, which is weird for me. So if you don't know, to punt it, you're just trying to get the ball down the field, you know. And so we're going to punt Ananias and Sapphira a little bit here. And I make no apologies for that because um, I would rather focus on the generosity God calls us to rather than this contrast uh, in, in mind. But I, I think we need to touch on it for just a bit. First and foremost, I want to come back to this statement when it says that uh, in Acts, I want to note this. 
do to do to do beginning of four. All the believers were one in heart and in mind. I was listening to a teaching by uh, this uh, neuroscientist named Dr. Caroline Leaf uh, this last week, and she was noticed she noted something that when we together as a as a body sing worship together, this funny thing biologically happens is our hearts begin to beat in tune together. Right now, individually, we're all beating at our different rhythm, but when the music starts and our singing starts, our bodies all line up and our hearts beat as one. So it's really interesting to me that when the Word of God says that the, the believers were all of one heart and one mind, it's interesting that, that this passage starts with this and it kind of ends with the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira stopping. They were out of unity and they were out of step. But when we get there, I want you, because I'm punting it and I don't have time to go into everything, I'll say this. There's so much baggage that we come to this particular passage with because Ananias and Sapphira, they, they sold land, they lied about the total, and they came before, and Peter called them out. Peter had knowledge, supernatural knowledge, a word of knowledge about this. And a lot of times, and even in many of the commentaries I read, it talked about the Lord's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. And let me just say this. In almost any other time in the Old Testament where, some, where the Lord judges someone and kills them, which he does do, or did do in the Old Testament, he always claims responsibility and credit. The Word of God always says, this is what the Lord did. If you want an example of it, go to 2 Samuel 12, where David, uh, when he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and the prophet Nathan confronts him. And he says, as a consequence, the Lord is bringing the sword to your family. In fact, says he will kill this child that was born out of wedlock. And the Lord does. He takes responsibility for the judgment. Nowhere in this passage in Acts does it ever say that the Lord dropped them dead. It doesn't say that. And you know, I had a Bible professor that once said, let the Bible interpret the Bible. He said, when you're looking at a passage of Scripture, properly learning the meaning of it, you look at it to tell you the meaning. You don't take the meaning you think it thinks, and then you superimpose it on the Scripture. You don't do that. And so in this passage, nowhere does it say that the Lord struck them dead. Nowhere. They just dropped dead. They breathed their last, is what it says. Their hearts stopped, and they breathed their last. Now, I will say this. I've been caught in a lie before. How many of you have been caught in a lie before? Listen, if I had to admit it, I'm the preacher. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've been caught in a lie before. Then you understand... <laughs> that there is a biological response to that. It's not just spiritual. Correct? There is a biological response to us. In fact, in the Word of God, it says in Psalm 32, I'll start at verse 3. When I kept silent, speaking of hidden sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. And so there's that conviction that conviction of deceit and sin. Do not tell me in this supernaturally generous environment that Ananias and Sapphira, who lied, did not feel the supernatural sense of conviction about their lie. You cannot tell me that that was not a reality in their life because it is a reality in all of ours. And trust me when I say, I've lied. I've lied before. One time I, I was singing a song. I was doing a special music number, as they used to call it. Some of you remember those. <laughs> the taped accompaniment track would start in the back. You'd hear the slight hiss in the sound, and then some Sandy Patty song would start, and then you'd <laughs> sing it. 
You know what I'm talking about. I just got a witness. So there was one time I was so insecure. I was singing this special music number, and I knew there was a note I couldn't reach at that particular day. It was, this is so terrible. I can't believe I'm confessing it to you. But I got to that point in the song, and I instead got blessed, which meant I did this. I was singing la, 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 and then I... <gasps> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and then when the song, that part passed, I started singing again. That was a lie. Such a lie. I was not feeling blessed. I had a cold. And I couldn't reach the note. You know, so I was like, rather than making a big fool out of myself by, ooh, you know, that kind of thing, I just got blessed. And everyone was like, oh, he's so spiritual. And it was terrible. And I felt so bad about it. I was like... I might have even thought about Ananias and Sapphira. I'm like, I'm not lying to men, and just I'm lying to the Lord, you know, but I don't want to miss the note. And our pride gets in the way, and our desire to be thought of better gets in the way, and we lie. And if in that moment I felt so bad, you, I, you cannot tell me Ananias and Sapphira weren't feeling the heat. And so when the Lord revealed the truth, because the Scripture does not say the Lord killed them, I think it's a very natural reality to understand that if we let Scripture interpret Scripture and Scripture inform Scripture, Galatians 6 simply says this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And that destruction could simply be dying of shock, dying of grief. It's a natural consequence that the Lord did not do at least we can, we can at least hold that as a possibility because the Lord doesn't claim credit for their death. Whether the Lord killed them or he didn't, we can wrestle with that another time. I'm punting it today. But what we can say is that there's a possibility that we can interpret this through the rest of the word of God, that sin covered wastes us physically away, and God will not be mocked. We reap destruction if we sow to please our flesh. The good news is we sow to please the Spirit from the Spirit. We reap life. And the rest of that passage goes right along with this. When it says this, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Let me say this about Ananias and Sapphira. It doesn't say that they, weren't, they aren't in heaven. It doesn't say they weren't believers. They were so convinced of the kingdom that they did sell property and they did give a large portion. They were insecure and they wanted to be thought better of. They made a mistake and their mistake and their sin ended up in their death. We cannot surmount from this passage that they're in hell. We can't surmount that God does not love them. What we can know is that God cares about the integrity of his people and he wants us to be generous and he gives us the opportunity to decide how generous we want to be because they were not accused for only giving a portion. They were accused for lying about presenting that they gave the whole thing. And this is not about finances. This is not about our tithe. This is not about the programs of the church and how we fund it. This is about our hearts being generous and honest before the Lord. Amen? Amen. That's right. Punt that ball. Okay. I really enjoy this, by the way. <laughs> I really enjoy doing this. So let me, let me say one more thing about um, them, and then we'll move on to close this up.
land the plane. Ananias and Sapphira were in the middle of a supernaturally generous culture, which means that whenever God is starting to move in a supernatural way, the enemy will want to destroy it through, in, through our own insecurity. He will. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted part of this. They invested part in this. But it was their insecurity that ultimately they rep- reaped the consequences of because their insecurity led to deceit. And the Lord cares about honesty and integrity in his community because honesty and integrity and transparency and authenticity and and humility, those things matter to the kingdom. And any time we cover up our sin, any time we cover things up, any time we manipulate, church, it robs us of community. It, it robs us. It, it, it breaks that unity in a heartbeat. We aren't one anymore. We're out of pace. We're out of rhythm. And God is calling us to be one in heart and mind. One more thing, not on them, but on this. The scripture in Galatians brings up a really interesting point, and, it, and it's demonstrated in the, in the book of Acts as well. The church was concerned first and foremost about caring supernaturally in a generous way for their own. Now, in our hearts, we talk a lot about mission. We talk a lot about the world. We talk a lot about getting out there into the world. And those are good things. We need to do it. But can I say this? Sometimes we are so much better about trying to meet the needs of the world that we forget the needs sitting two feet away from us. And the scripture says they'll know that we are believers by the way we love each other. Our culture changes first and then it spills out over there. So look around you. There are needs all around you. There are needs for love. There are needs for compassion. There are needs for a listening ear. There's needs for practical help. There's probably a meal train going on right now, and you need to get some, something and deliver it to someone's house. There's needs to listen through grief. There's needs to see the pain going on and to, and to step in. Not every want do we have to meet. We don't. We need the wisdom of God to understand the difference between a need and a want. But when we discern the need, church, can we pray that we become so supernaturally generous, so supernaturally generous, that we give out of this overflow of what we understand the Lord has given to us. The Lord has given us our needs. The Lord has poured out his salvation on us. He's poured out his mercy. He's poured out his kindness. He's poured out his love. And we can pour all of that right back out. We have it in us to give. Can we choose to let the Lord pour out and become supernaturally generous among us? Because then people will see. Then they'll see. Then they'll see. And not only that, then our healing will come. Let's pray and lay on this plane. Lord God, I pray right now for anyone who has in their own, in just because it was a result of maybe bad preaching or bad exegesis or bad whatever it is, bad translation, bad, bad whatever, they've seen this passage and missed the forest for the trees. And it's become about money when, when yeah, that's one of many of our resources. But Lord, more than anything else, it's about integrity and generosity. So Lord, can we be a people of generosity? Can we be a people that, that sees 
and the, the needs around us and out of a love for you and love for each other goes in to meet the need. Lord, give us a spirit of wisdom to understand what the need is. Give us a, a, a spirit of, of security so that we can give freely without any concern that we won't be poured into. Lord, your word says, those who refresh others will they themselves be refreshed. A generous person will be prosperous. You will prosper a generous person. So, Lord God, can we trust your character? Trust your character, Lord God, to know what you are calling us to do and what you are calling us to give. And, Lord, one more thing. Can you pour out on us not just the wisdom to see it, but the volition to go do it? Lord, embolden us by your spirit. Free us to be your agents in this world where we give out what we've been given. Lord, we love you. I pray that any, anything in this that was too much a Drew and not enough of your spirit, Lord, will you burn from our memories and just supplant only your wisdom and revelation to this, only your instruction, Lord God. We love you. We thank you. Bless my brothers and sisters today and change us to be a reflection of your generous heart. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.